Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 31, and uh, we're recording this on September 3rd, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please do your own homework. Okay. Starting off with the weekly market update, the S&P 500 on Friday posted another week of hefty losses, following 3.29% for the five-day session. The benchmark index has now posted a three-week losing streak after a four-week run of gains. The markets are closed on Monday for the Labor Day holiday. Happy Labor Day, by the way, for those of you that are in the United States and celebrating. Muted investor sentiment carried on from last week after the U.S. Federal Reserve Chair at the Jackson Hole Symposium indicated that policymakers were committed to raising rates in order to combat inflation. A trend of good news is bad news trading also weighed on the S&P 500 as economic data released during the week supported the case for a hawkish Fed. Investors digested job openings data that exceeded consensus expectations, a retooled ADP report that showed less-than-expected jobs were added in August, jobless claims figures, a stronger-than-expected ISM manufacturing PMI readout, and an unexpected increase in the unemployment rate. The S&P 500, along with the broader market, also took a hit from semiconductor stocks, which fell after the U.S. prohibited NVIDIA from selling some of its products to China. Oil prices ended the week higher on expectations that OPEC Plus will discuss output cuts at a meeting next week. Brent crude futures settled at 93.02 a barrel, while U.S. West Texas intermediate crude futures settled at $86.87 a barrel. And I will, uh, I don't normally do... uh, portfolio updates in mid-month, but I did make a switch in my 401k um, about a week ago. I uh, got out of stocks and I just uh, switched the portfolio to 50-50 treasury bonds and real estate. I think those are uh, probably going to lose less money (laughs) in the coming weeks. uh, vis-a-vis stocks, and uh, I just thought it made sense to, to move into something a little bit more defensive there. Um, didn't really change anything else, but uh, I did make that one move mid-month. Okay, so moving on to Bitcoin news. Uh, the first one was a kind of a fun one, uh, some, some pretty serious fear and uncertainty and doubt. Uh, This is from Coindesk. This was published on September 2nd. And the title of the article is, Bitcoin's price may crash after Ethereum's merge, researcher says. Kyle McDonald told Coindesk TV's first mover, the Bitcoin network may be regulated away because of its energy consumption. Kyle McDonald, an independent researcher, predicts that the Bitcoin network may be regulated away, causing the price of Bitcoin to collapse. He recommends selling Bitcoin now. 
The reason is that after the Ethereum blockchain switches to a drastically less energy intensive method of validating transactions known as proof of stake, investors and regulators may realize that the energy intensive method that both Bitcoin and Ethereum use now called proof of work was never really necessary. Speaking on Coindesk TV's first mover program on Friday, McDonald cited the climate crisis uh, and Bitcoin's massive use of energy. He said that because Bitcoin doesn't have the coordination like Ethereum to leave proof of work, it could be the first to be regulated away. Crypto's energy consumption has become a major bone of contention for environmental activists and governments. And McDonald said Bitcoin will never see $69,000 again. The cryptocurrency traded close to that mark last November. Ethereum switch, a software update called the merge is expected to happen this month. And one expected benefit is that not as many computers will be required to keep the blockchain going. To track Ethereum's energy movement, McDonald created the Ethereum emissions tracker, which takes a bottom up approach that doesn't factor in Ethereum's price or the price of electricity, according to McDonald's website. I'm starting with the hash rate, then looking at the hardware and making a technical argument for how much electricity must be used, he said. One risk, however, relates to non-fungible tokens, McDonald said. That is, there's a good chance some miners are going to switch to proof of work temporarily after the merge happens. If the miners do, in fact, switch, there could be duplicates of NFTs for a short period of time on another chain, he said. If that were to happen, it could potentially even dilute their values. But OpenSea, the world's largest NFT marketplace, said it would support only the proof-of-stake chain and added that it had been preparing for the transition in order to make sure the process runs smoothly. Well, uh, lots of bold predictions in here. Um, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, it would be surprising to me uh, uh, if Bitcoin were regulated out of existence globally, uh, since there is a certain amount of financial uh, incentives attached to Bitcoin mining, for example. And um, we already know, and we've talked about this before, that Bitcoin mining is a, is a great way to uh, to make uh, alternative energy capture uh, more financially viable let's just say uh, you know uh, burning um, uh, for example um, uh, gas that's being flared in oil fields you know capturing that using that to generate power to mine Bitcoin uh, would actually reduce his emissions. Uh, and, um, you know, you could build, you know, huge amounts of uh, hydropower or um, uh, solar or wind in remote locations that are nowhere near where people are. Um, and these could be financially viable uh, with Bitcoin mining attached to it. So, um, the climate crisis, you know, the uh, ESG movement, all of this stuff, um, I think a lot of it is politically motivated. I mean, yeah, the climate is changing, but 
is the government really going to change the weather, you know, with their new laws or, or whatever? Um, I don't know if I believe that. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's definitely a political narrative here. There's definitely a, uh, you know, Ethereum is really a centralized network and it's going to become even more centralized through proof of stake because the, the validators of the network are going to be whoever has the most coins. Uh, like I think you have to have a minimum of 30 <clears throat> Ethereum to become a validator in the proof of stake. And so um, the, you know, centralization then allows the, the uh, people that control the network to change the rules. And uh, that's one of the advantages of Bitcoin is nobody controls the network. And so nobody can change the rules. And so you know that there's always going to be 21 million coins and that, you know, every block's going to get written, um, you know, roughly every 10 minutes and um, transactions are just going to continue to get processed. So um, we'll see what happens after the merge, but uh, I, I don't think it's realistic to assume that there's going to be some kind of global you know, ban on Bitcoin. And frankly, you know, you can't ban something that's decentralized. That's the bottom line. So uh, good luck with that is all I can say. Uh, more news in the FUD department. Um, this, uh, of course, Michael Saylor, who's a big proponent of Bitcoin, uh, uh, recently stepped down as, a, as the chairman of the board of uh, MicroStrategy, but still um, owns, you know, shares in the company, um, was accused of evading $25 million in taxes by the D.C. Attorney General. So the District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine accused MicroStrategy co-founder and executive chairman Michael Saylor of evading $25 million in district taxes in a lawsuit filed Wednesday. The lawsuit also names MicroStrategy as a defendant. Racine alleges the company conspired to help Saylor evade the taxes. The AG's office said it's seeking to recover a total sum of over $100 million in unpaid taxes and penalties. Shares of MicroStrategy were down more than 6% Wednesday afternoon on the news. Saylor, who oversaw the company's push into Bitcoin, Stepped down as CEO earlier this month under his leadership, MicroStrategy spent close to $4 billion acquiring Bitcoin at an average price of $30,700. And he has said that he considers the company's stock a sort of Bitcoin ETF. Saylor allegedly claimed to reside in Virginia or Florida, which have lower or no personal income tax rates while actually living in several different homes around D.C., including a penthouse apartment in the Georgetown neighborhood or on his yacht on the Georgetown waterfront or Potomac River when the apartment was undergoing renovations, according to the lawsuit. The suit includes several screenshots of posts that appear to be from Saylor's Facebook page dating back several years and referencing the view from his Georgetown balcony and discussing his home while tagging Washington, D.C. MicroStrategy allegedly had detailed information confirming that Saylor was in fact a D.C. resident according to a press release, but it chose to withhold that information. In a statement, MicroStrategy said 
The case is a personal tax matter involving Mr. Saylor. The company was not responsible for his day-to-day affairs and did not oversee his individual tax responsibilities, nor did the company conspire with Mr. Saylor in the discharge of his personal tax responsibilities. The District of Columbia's claims against the company are false, and we will defend aggressively against this overreach. Around 2014, the AG's office claims in the lawsuit, MicroStrategy's then chief financial officer confronted Saylor about his alleged tax evasion being a potential liability for the company. Saylor and MicroStrategy ended up reaching an agreement where Saylor's salary would be reduced to a nominal $1. The lawsuit claims in order to reduce the risk, authorities would discover the alleged scheme. Still, the AG alleges Saylor continued to benefit from fringe benefits with a high cash value, such as use of the company plane. A decade ago, I bought a historic house in Miami Beach and moved my home there from Virginia, Saylor said in a statement. Although MicroStrategy is based in Virginia, Florida is where I live, vote, and have reported for jury duty, and it is at the center of my personal and family life. I respectfully disagree with the position of the District of Columbia and look forward to a fair resolution in the courts. The suit is the first to be brought under a recently passed law called the False Claims Act, according to Racine's office. The district law incentivizes whistleblowers to report tax fraud and allows the court to impose penalties up to three times the amount of the evaded taxes, according to the AG's office. The district suit follows a separate complaint filed by whistleblowers against Saylor in April 2021, accusing him of failing to pay income taxes from 2014 through 2020. The complaint was filed under the seal, but made public on Wednesday. The AG's office said it independently investigated the whistleblower case and found MicroStrategy had filed inaccurate W-2s with his Florida-based address and had failed to withhold taxes allegedly owed to the district. The new lawsuit alleges Saylor failed to pay income tax he owed to the district starting in 2005. Uh, and uh, I should have mentioned this is from CNBC, and this was dated August 31st. So, uh, you know, very interesting that this comes up. Um, and uh, obviously, Michael Saylor, a big proponent of Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, we'll see whether or not he's actually a Florida resident or not. Sounds to me like the government is trying to uh, drag him into something um, that may not be uh, on the up and up. Um, the new law certainly seems uh, a bit overreaching and um, definitely uh, need to be careful with the tax authorities and pay your taxes. And if you don't like uh, where you live, then you move somewhere else. But you need to stay in the state <laughs> that you're a resident in uh, and make sure that uh, you're, you know, covered. You can't be spending a bunch of time somewhere else and saying that you're uh, you're still a resident of the, the state that has no personal income taxes. So uh, we'll see what the facts are in that one, but it's very interesting. A lot of people will, will be following that and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully he's right. And he can prove that he's a resident of Florida. And uh, these folks in D.C. Uh, can uh, take a hike. We'll see. Uh, and then the, the next uh, thing I was going to cover was just uh, something I 
found those kind of interesting as just sort of almost like a Q&A about whether uh, Bitcoin transactions are anonymous and traceable. Um, and I got this from uh, uh, Cointelegraph. So the first question here is, can you trace a Bitcoin transaction? Through blockchain explorers, one can easily track Bitcoin transactions, but it is becoming increasingly difficult to conduct Bitcoin transactions anonymously. It is certainly possible to trace a Bitcoin transaction. Bitcoin explorers allow you to map activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. Thanks to this transparency, transactions are traceable, and you can think of the blockchain as a kind of open database full of Bitcoin transactions. Other cryptocurrencies like Ether and Solana also have their own blockchain explorers called Etherscan and Solscan. In all these explorers, you can find information about the transactions on the blockchain, such as how much crypto was sent and which addresses were involved in the transaction. Despite the transparency of the blockchain, many people think that you can still make Bitcoin transactions anonymously. However, more and more countries are implementing Know Your Customer rules, which requires you to reveal your identity on centralized trading platforms. By disclosing your identity, it becomes a lot easier for the government to discover what transactions you've carried out and to see what is in your Bitcoin wallet. To be able to trade on a central exchange, personal data will have to be supplied to the exchange. Bitcoin addresses can therefore be linked to personal data since the data of previous Bitcoin transactions is not deleted, it is always possible to view past transactions. <clears throat> what makes Bitcoin traceable? Bitcoin transactions are traceable because Bitcoin's blockchain is completely transparent and every transaction is publicly stored on a distributed ledger. Since 2013, various studies have been looking into tracking Bitcoin transactions and their associated identities. Although it is possible to create a certain form of identity with cryptocurrencies, it is difficult to send transactions completely anonymously via the Bitcoin blockchain. Blockchains remain fully open and accessible to everyone. Thanks to the transparency of the blockchain, it is possible to easily track money flows. If the identity behind a wallet address is known, then the transactions made can be traced back and traced in the future. All these transactions can be viewed in detail. In this way, it is possible to see which amount was sent, but also on which date and to which wallet. How are Bitcoin transactions traced? With increasing legislation and surveillance, governments can trace fraudulent BTC transactions more easily by finding the identity behind a Bitcoin wallet address. In recent years, millions in cryptocurrencies have been seized by various governments worldwide. Criminals saw the opportunities that blockchain technology has to offer and tried to buy cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin as anonymously as possible. Ultimately, this did not work out well for many fraudsters, and it can be stated that Bitcoin transactions are not fully anonymous. These events have helped to tighten legislation in this area and intensify the search for fraudulent transactions. When trading from Bitcoin wallets whose identity is not known, Transactions can be traced quickly, and it can take time to find out the identity. When someone wants to exchange their cryptocurrencies for United States dollars, it already becomes a lot easier to trace the identity of the wallet owner and trace back the transactions. Can you search for a Bitcoin wallet address? 
It is possible to search for a Bitcoin wallet address through a Bitcoin Explorer. However, finding a crypto address does not mean that you also know the identity behind it. When you don't have any identifying information that goes with the Bitcoin wallet, it's hard to search. Through a blockchain explorer, it is easy to find transactions and addresses, but it can take a, a lot of time to find out the identity behind a wallet address. Because someone's wallet address does not have to be anonymous, but can be hard to find, a Bitcoin wallet address is called a pseudonym, an alias, which is different from someone's actual name. The data is not linked to an identity, but it is still possible to trace someone's identity or a pseudonym. What are the challenges in tracking a Bitcoin address? It can be difficult to track Bitcoin transactions when people use various wallets and Bitcoin mixers. These factors disrupt the search process and take up a lot of time. Despite the fact that it is challenging for users of a Bitcoin wallet to conduct transactions completely anonymously, there are several ways to get close to an anonymity. For example, it is possible to use a cryptocurrency mixer. In this case, it is a Bitcoin mixer, which ensures that it is more difficult to make Bitcoin traceable. This is done by mixing Bitcoin transactions from different people together in a pool, then sending the transactions to the intended addresses. In addition, wallets can be very difficult to monitor. If someone does not want their activities on the Bitcoin network to be traceable, it is possible to create a sort of smokescreen by creating many crypto wallets and carrying out various transactions between these wallets it can be more difficult for anyone to trace transactions and wallets. Both challenges are difficult on their own, but combining them can make tracking Bitcoin addresses a lot more difficult. Tracking transactions and wallets will take an enormous amount of time and energy. Can you have an anonymous Bitcoin wallet? Anonymous Bitcoin wallets exist, but be careful while handling them. You can reveal your identity, which defeats the purpose of the wallet. It is certainly possible to have an anonymous Bitcoin wallet. However, a wallet alone is not enough to ensure the, uh, this an anonymity. When someone makes several transactions, an identity can be linked to a wallet where this information is known. Due to the tightened KYC rules for exchanges, it seems to be increasingly challenging to conduct transactions in a completely anonymous way. Nevertheless, there are Bitcoin wallets that allow you to operate completely anonymously the Electrum wallet is an example of this, which can also be integrated with a hardware wallet. Before making the choice to use an anonymous wallet, it is useful to first consider how Bitcoin will get into the wallet. When Bitcoin is sent from an exchange with KYC, the anonymity is already gone. And finally, should I share my Bitcoin address publicly? It is not a problem to share public keys, but make sure the private key cannot be found by third parties. Transactions can be sent to the public key, which is completely secure. It is safe to share your Bitcoin address publicly. This way, it is possible to safely complete donations or payments. No cryptocurrencies can be stolen through a public address. The only way by which stealing crypto is possible is if someone has managed to get hold of the private keys. Bitcoin wallets always make a difference between public keys and private keys. A public key can be compared to your email address. Anyone can send emails to it, but only the owner of the email address can read them. With a cryptocurrency address, this is no different. Since others can use this address to send crypto, and the owner of the address is the only one who can use the digital asset. The private key is the password to enter the wallet. It is important that this unique code is kept in an offline place 
or no one can access it. Sharing personal data such as the private keys and the wallet password with others can cause the wallet in question to be emptied. Therefore, only share the public key if necessary and keep the other codes in a safe place. And so this is a great segue into uh, my topic for this week, uh, which is Bitcoin security setup. And I would say it's always a good idea to check your setup and adjust. So if you want to take advantage of all that Bitcoin has to offer, you should not hold your coins on exchanges and should self-custody them instead. There have been plenty of headlines lately of people losing their coins when an exchange goes under. Some of these exchanges who paid a tiny rate of interest to depositors ended up pledging the deposited Bitcoin as collateral to loans gone bad, wiping out both the exchange and the depositors in the process. Even exchanges who don't blatantly do this, like Coinbase, still warn in their SEC filings that the coins held on the exchange could be taken by someone with a higher priority in the event of bankruptcy. Depositors could end up last in line as general unsecured creditors. And here's an excerpt from Coinbase's recent quarterly report in their risk factors. Moreover, because custodially held crypto assets may be considered to be the property of a bankruptcy estate, in the event of a bankruptcy, the crypto assets we hold in custody on behalf of our customers could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings and such customers could be treated as our general unsecured creditors. This may result in customers finding our custodial services more risky and less attractive and any failure to increase our customer base discontinuation or reduction in use of our platform and products by existing customers as a result could adversely impact our business operating results and financial condition. The Bitcoin saying, not your keys, not your coins, continues to ring true. Once making the decision to self-custody, however, you get transported into a whole new world that many of us are not prepared for. Since we are so used to having other trusted third parties hold our financial assets, including banks, stock brokerages, investment managers, etc. About the only financial assets we typically self-custody is cash and maybe some gold and silver coins. Making the decision to self-custody Bitcoin is the ultimate form of self-sovereignty and also truly taking full responsibility for your finances. Once you've made the decision to self-custody, however, that's only the beginning of the learning journey. I wanted to dedicate some time to uh, some different considerations and different options available to self-custody that I've tried and I've found useful without being overly complicated. So first we'll just talk about the basic single signature setup. For a basic single signature setup, you can purchase one hardware wallet. I actually like the term signing device better since it more clearly describes its function. Your coins are not actually stored on the device, they're on the Bitcoin blockchain, and the device just allows you to sign transactions, prove you own the coins, and move the coins around to different wallets using a combination of your public and private keys. I've used Trezor, um, you can purchase that directly from them online, and Ledger, uh, which I bought on Amazon, um, hardware wallets. You do need to be sure you receive original sealed packaging from the manufacturer and never use a previously used device, just for safety. 
Both devices are pretty easy to use and require connecting to your computer through a USB connection and downloading an app to your computer to interact with your coins. The basic setup includes choosing a passcode for the device and generating a seed phrase or private key of 12 to 24 random words. The device um, and the app together pretty much walk you through the process step by step. I've also heard that cold card is a good signing device and has some advantages to the others and that it does not directly connect to your computer. It uses a micro SD card and has several other security features. Um, some are actually quite advanced, but um, I haven't used that one yet. The upside of a basic single signature setup is that it's easy to implement compared to other options, and it's also faster and easier to use in practice to transfer coins around your wallets. The downside of a basic setup is that if something happens to your signing device or if your passcode and or your seed phrase are lost or stolen, you're in big trouble and your coins could be lost forever. You can take some precautions like make, making a metal seed plate with your seed phrase on it and storing that in a location separate from your signing device. And you can also create a second backup of your seed phrase on paper and also store that safely in a separate location. If your device were to fail, you could get a new device, set up a new wallet, and recover your Bitcoin using your seed phrase. But that's a hassle, and having a backup doesn't protect you from a thief who somehow gets access to your credentials. Um, now we'll talk about multi-signature setup. So another option is to use more than one key to sign your Bitcoin transactions. There are many ways of doing this, um, using different wallets that support multi-signature. Um, actually, in my blog post for the week, I included a link to the Bitcoin wiki that has some um, examples of wallets that support multi-sig, as well as a nice explanation of what it is and how it works. From what I've learned, it sounds a bit more complicated to implement compared to single signature, but significantly improves your security since it eliminates the single point of failure of one key. One multi-signature option that I've tried and I like so far is with Unchained Capital. They are a Bitcoin-only company that provides Bitcoin purchasing, custody, and lending services. For custody, Unchained provides a multi-signature vault that can be accessed by using two of three keys. I started out with them by rolling over a Roth IRA I had at JP Morgan. Their vaults use the two of three setup, which means any two of three keys can be used to sign transactions. While it's nice to have a full control over your coins in the IRA, if you withdraw your coins early, um, you'll be subject to penalties, and that's basically what the custodian um, Solera Bank that they use watches out for in addition to deposits in excess of how much you're allowed to contribute each year and other um, IRA compliance matters. This is the only Bitcoin IRA I've found so far where you can truly hold your own keys, which is why I'm also rolling over the coins on my digital trust IRA where you can't hold your keys um, uh, to my unchained IRA. I have also recently set up another vault to store some of my other non-retirement account coins. So to set up a vault, you upload two public keys, not your private keys, from two separate signing devices. Unchained supports Trezor, Ledger, and Cold Card, and they hold the third key. 
In this setup, you can access your coins anytime by using your two signing devices to sign transactions. But if for some reason one of them becomes compromised, you can reach out to Unchained to use their key as the second key to access your coins. You also have to be able to log into their portal to access the vault, which is another security check against unauthorized access. They also have optional features like requiring video identification if more than a certain percentage that you set of the coins are moved at one time before allowing the transaction. Bottom line is having two keys to access your coins makes it way harder for someone to steal your coins versus having only one key. The nice thing about multi-signature setup with Unchained is that you can still have full control of your coins with the two keys, but you can have someone to help you if your coins, if your keys are compromised, in addition to some other optional security features. The downside of this setup is if Unchained goes out of business and you no longer have access to your vault. Since you still have your two keys though, you can still sign transactions with both keys by using another application. So you would set up your own multi-signature wallet using your two keys and then move your coins wherever you want to. It's a hassle, but at least you still control your coins. There are other two of three multi-signature setup options available with Unchained, including you holding one key, a trustee holding the second key, and Unchained holding the third key. Any coin movement would require coordination of two of the three key holders, and obviously proof that the movement is authorized would be required. This is an extremely secure setup, but is also a hassle since you would have to coordinate coin movement every time. Having said that, this would be the ultimate protection against what Bitcoiners call the $5 wrench attack, which is if someone physically threatens you to transfer your coins to them. With this setup, there's no way that you can move the coins by yourself. Uh, now I'll talk a little bit about estate planning. So there are advantages from an estate planning standpoint to using multi-signature security since your trustee and Unchained could work together to move your coins as part of your estate settlement process without needing your key. The other way to handle this for estate planning, if you want to control the two keys, is to leave a detailed letter of instruction to your successor trustee on how to access your keys when you pass using the multi-signature setup or signal, single signature if that's what you have. One thing I would not do is put your signing device passcode or private key in the letter. Instead, I would refer to a location where they're stored under lock and key and either where to find the key or who has custody of the key. That way, if the letter falls into the wrong hands, they can't easily steal your coins. Bitcoin is a relatively new asset in the estate planning space, but not too dissimilar to gold, silver coins, family heirlooms, and similar uh, physical assets that need to be transferred to heirs. However, Bitcoin is certainly more complex in how it is held and transferred compared to traditional self-custodied assets. Uh, now I'll talk a little bit about seed phrase storage. So as I mentioned before, it's highly recommended to purchase a seed plate. I tried one called CryptoTag Zeus, but there are plenty of others on the market uh, where you store your seed phrase. Um, you basically punch codes into a metal plate that represent the seed words in their exact order. Um, CryptoTag actually references a standard, uh, what they call a BIP39 word list, um, and you use a metal punch, super loud, so you have to wear earplugs when you do that. This is um, much more 
durable way to store the, the phrase than a piece of paper. Um, and I keep the seed plate stored in a bank safe deposit box. So it's away from the house and in, inaccessible without quite a bit of extra work. Um, and I also keep a backup copy of the seed phrase in a fireproof safe just in case it's needed. Um, while it's not ideal to keep the seed phrase and signing device in the same location, it is more convenient if you need it. Uh, there are often firmware updates to the signing devices and you need to have your seed phrase handy in case there's a problem with the update. Um, and actually that's, you know, another reason why you want to have multi-signatures, you know, because these are after all hardware devices and software and stuff happens. Uh, so far though, I haven't had any problems with any of either updating the software on my computer or the firmware on, on the, uh, the keys on the uh, signing devices. <clears throat> um, with a multi-signature setup, like I described uh, previously, you know, where you control two of the three keys, there's less risk if one of the keys are compromised as long as, you know, both signing devices are kept in different locations. Some final thoughts. I sometimes struggle with balancing um, self-reliance and relying on third parties when it comes to Bitcoin. I think each person has to come to their own conclusions about the right mix to optimize self-sovereignty and security. This is why Bitcoin continuing education and research are essential so you can evaluate the different security options. My setup has definitely evolved over time and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve as I learn more and new services and products come into the Bitcoin space. Accumulating Bitcoin is like planting a tree you may not live long enough to enjoy the shade of the tree, but your future generations will. As such, the only thing more important than accumulating Bitcoin is making sure that it's properly secured. Okay, so thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com and I will include links to the articles as well as my blog posts for this week in the show notes. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. Um, and I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.